I'm okay. Are you wearing that hat just for me? Absolutely. Yep. And I'm glad you noticed. There you go. Had to, had to go find my New York hat. You know? So I have, I have so many things I want to talk to you about with your book. But first, welcome to Freeport. My guest today is James Wade. Do you go by James? Yeah, I, uh, it was a mistake I made a long time ago. <laughs> when my first short story was published, I chose to publish under James Wade, which is my name. My name is yeah. James Nicholas Wade. Okay. And my grandfather, whose name is James Wade, had just passed away. And yeah. I thought, oh, I'll honor him with this short story and I'll probably yeah. never get anything published again ever. So what does it really <laughs> matter? It just kind of grew from there. And so now when I introduce myself to new people, if they have anything to do with the publishing or the writing industry, I have to say, hey, I'm James Wade, which right. feels awkward, but I'll answer to James or Nick or Wade or Kid or whatever. <laughs> so follow-up question is that, why did you not think that anything else was going to get published? Writing was just a side hobby, not even a side hustle. Um, it was just something that I wanted to play around with a little bit. I was working in government here in Texas and just thought that was kind of the path. And plus you always hear that you can't make any money as a writer, you know, and I knew I wanted to the, the old provide for my family shtick and have kids and all that. And, you know, I was pretty poor basically my whole life. And uh, my dad cuts grass for a living. And for the longest time, my mom was working as a teacher, which doesn't pay great anywhere, but especially not in, in Texas. And so I just didn't want to have financial worries. So I thought, oh, I'll never be a writer because I can't really make a career that way. Yeah. Well, in case people who are listening don't know, James is now a published novelist. <laughs> so jokes on him, I guess, in a way. But yeah, it's, it was a three book deal, right? Because I think that's that's when I met you and your wife. You were in New York to sign some, I don't know if it was the actual book contract or the deal or whatever, but that's when I met you. And that's what got us like to really start talking at that time. I was writing a little bit more than I am now. So I was like so curious about his journey and like how he got the book deal signed and, you know, what his evolution as a writer was and how he got to the point where he was now. So I'm in the midst of reading his first novel, All Things Left Wild. And I mean, I'm like going to try and hold myself back from blowing like too much smoke up your ass because it's such an amazing book. <laughs> so like, I, all right, I've been reading, so I got it. A couple days ago, I ordered it offline and I've been reading on the subway. Like I purposely took the subway yesterday and today because normally I ride my bike to work. So I purposely took the subway so I could read as much of it as I could before I talked to you. Oh, and like, man. I've had to stop myself from crying so many times reading this book. I used to be a voracious reader as a child. And then once I started commuting my bicycle, I didn't have as much downtime to read. After that, it was sort of a hiatus from reading. It was really hard for me to find any books that really grabbed me on an emotional level. And I don't know if, if any book I've ever read has really grabbed me. Maybe Kurt Vonnegut, a little bit, some of his short stories. But this is the first book I've read in a really long time that's really grabbed me by the emotions, like every emotion. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I know you're going to be humble and everything, but I'm just, <laughs> I told you this was coming. <laughs> You know, I, first of all, yes, that is very kind and, and I, and I appreciate it and I will be humble, but it's, it's a sincere humility because I'm glad as a podcast, people can't see me blushing right now. Um, <laughs> no, it's, the thing is, I've, I've heard it said that I'm not the first writer to say it, but you know, I'm wary of writers who think that their work is good. I love that you love 
the novel I love that so many people have uh, responded in emotional ways. The reviews were positive. The sales were good. There have been awards that this novel has won that I couldn't have possibly fucking imagined even just a year ago when it came out. The Western Writers America were kind enough to give me the Spur Award. The independent booksellers put me on their Reading the West shortlist. So you get all those things, like all that positive feedback and, and all uh, all that validation, I guess would be the, the right word. Yeah. But I still just, there's something that feels very, I feel very fraudulent. I hope though, that I kind of always feel that way. Um, because I think the day that I start to kind of pat myself on the back and think, oh, you're a pretty good writer. I think that's the day I stop trying to get better and trying to, right. to grow, not just as a writer, but as a thinker and a reader and, and all that stuff. And I mean, I'm just still so early in the process. You know, when I met you, that would have been, I guess, 2018, 2019. And yeah, we were headed to sign the first book contract and, and didn't really know what we were doing and still don't, which again, I think that's a good thing because the, the more I don't know, the more I can get out there and want to learn and, and grow in this industry. But no, I, I'm so glad that you're having an emotional response to it because I think that should be the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was telling my manager at work today that I was going to be interviewing this author and I was reading the book and how I was like, because it hit me in so many ways, like emotionally, but also intellectually, philosophically, I was just like, I'm like so desperate now for like a book club. I mean, I'm talking to the author, which is like, I guess the next best thing. I don't know. (laughs) My boss is like, no, it's probably better. You're actually talking to the writer, but it was just like, I was like, I need to like dish about this book. I need to like talk about it. (laughs) So I'm, I'm like so curious when you were writing this book, like my first question I want to ask you, what were you going through in your life? Cause I, I don't know if you're like me. I think this is why I had so much trouble writing fiction because it was hard for me to carry it over. But I really have to be hit by things on a personal level to write about it effectively, to make it like feel real, to actually be connected to it in a genuine way and be able to communicate something that means something. So a lot of times when I was writing fiction, I was just like making it up. If I wasn't connected to it, it just like, it sort of fell flat. It didn't really work. So I'm curious if you are the same way as a writer. And if you are, what was happening in your life at the time when you were writing this book? Yeah, that's a great question. And I am that way as a writer and not so much in like, there are a lot of writers who will write fiction, but I mean, it's almost autobiographical. You know, Hemingway did that. It was basically writing about his life. I know Bukowski uh, did that a lot, but for me, obviously, you know, this is a Western. It takes place in 1910 in the Southwest. So it wasn't the story, but you kind of mentioned the philosophy and the ideals behind that. You know, I was struggling with that. My wife and I were on this big American road trip, right? We were working our ass off in Austin. We both, you know, had the eight to five grinding jobs and we we just felt like we were always tired and we were making money, but to what end, you know, uh, our happiness was kind of being zapped. And so one day we just basically gave away all our shit, bought a very tiny travel trailer and a truck that was just big enough to pull it. And we hit the road for like two years. And during the first part of that trip, there was a very freeing experience to it. But like anything else, it started to get a little old. And I started to realize like all these answers that we thought we were going to get, they haven't just come to us, you know, like we thought, oh, we'll just get out in, you know, the wilderness and we'll meditate and all the universe will just open up and show us exactly how to be happy and what we're supposed to do and meaning and purpose of everything. Um, Obviously, that didn't happen. That's not the way that shit works. And so when I started writing the book, we were about halfway through our trip. 
and a lot of what the main character Caleb deals with philosophically and then also a lot of what uh, Randall kind of the I'm not going to call him an antagonist but certainly yeah. you know the, the opposite of Caleb a lot of what uh, he deals with on on a personal level like with confidence and stuff both of those things are just two different sides of me and so you know I was worried that look we gave away all our stuff we're burning through our savings and we're no closer to learning our purpose you know than we were when we started this trip and so you know I think a lot of the book for for Caleb is you know he's had these terrible things that have happened to him terrible things that he's done based on circumstances that he's been in and he is just very curious about the meaning of it all whether that's religious, spiritual, even just the practical stuff, like how he impacts other people and how other people impact him. And those are questions that the book doesn't answer by any means. And that's because I don't know the fucking answer. You know, I try with, with everything I write, I try to explore questions that, that bother me or questions that I think about a lot without ever, I mean, you know, I don't want to preach to anybody. So there's no, there's no answer. But a lot of times the journey is better than the destination. And I think just talking about those questions and kind of getting into the, some of the philosophy of it is, you know, just as satisfying. When you say that the characters, Caleb, Randall, were based on like either things you were grappling with or thinking about or trying to figure out how, it's going to sound crazy, but how did you do that? How did you because for me, it would almost be impossible. I guess maybe, maybe not, but it feels like it would be impossible for me as a writer to create not just one, but two characters that sort of encapsulate things that I'm dealing with on a personal level on the background of this whole made up story in a time completely different than the one that you live in and still make it feel so real. Like I would never, like half of me was like, there's no way this is like a personal thing for him. Like he can't possibly be illustrative of any of these characters. Like all this has to be just like made up that like he was inspired by his trip. I don't know, like the landscape and the scenery and everything. And he's a history buff, I don't know. But it's so interesting that you're able, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how do you do it in a way that feels so real? You know, I can't speak to how it feels real to the reader, but, yeah. but you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It is this historical story that, that takes place in a different time. And, and that's purposeful because I do love reading historical fiction and I am a history buff. But so often when we look at history, we look at it through the lens of whatever giant event was happening. Right. Yeah. And so if, if somebody said to you like, oh, the 1940s, well, then you immediately start thinking about World War II and oh, America was in World War II. And that's true. But in this, obviously, the book was written before the, the pandemic, but I look at the year that we just went through, which was a insanely historical year with the, with the pandemic and with the social justice movements and the political turmoil and all this stuff. I mean, this will be written about in, in history books. And while we all were impacted by that and it changed our, our daily lives there was still a ton to us that didn't have anything to do with it. Like, what were we doing? We're trying to pay rent. We're trying to raise our family. We're trying to ward off the existential dread and right. you know, the, the fucking anxiety of, of everything. That's what everybody's had to deal with since forever, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought it would be interesting and worthwhile to look at characters from a different time and just show they're dealing with shit too. Now, obviously it is a novel. And so maybe some of what they're dealing with is a little more dramatic, 
because you want to hook the reader and, and have them wanting to turn the page. But but so much of the emotion for both of those characters. I mean, for instance, Randall, he just thought the world was going to be something different. You know, he was raised on poetry and classic literature and these all these ideals of everything. That resonates with me a lot because, you know, that's what you learn. or That's what I learned was fucking America's awesome and life is beautiful and be whatever you want. Like that was my generation, you know, and, and everything was just going to be this big, wonderful fucking thing. And he is thrown into the fire, you know, when it comes to just how harsh the realities of the West are, of the world, of other people. And, you know, if you're halfway through, you're probably seeing that naivety, that ignorance is, is starting to turn almost into this cynical in other words, how does he hold on to that purity that he came into to all this with when he's going through all this shit? And I, and I feel that way all the time. I feel like if I am upbeat and positive and all the shit you see on like the you can do it posters, like I feel sometimes I feel like a fucking moron, you know, and I just want to be cynical and I want to be much more of a realist and all that stuff. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with either one of those. I'm just saying that I struggle with either of those personalities. Um, and Caleb is kind of the opposite of that. Caleb has learned from a very young age some of the harsher realities of the world. And that was also part of, of my upbringing and some of the stuff I went through when I was younger in terms of the family stuff. Uh, you know, Caleb is estranged from his father and there's, you know, that, that harshness there and he's kind of looking up to the wrong people. And so there's so much about both those characters and the reason I was able to do it in, I think, is the fact that there were two of them, right? If I just wrote myself, I would be too close to it and the characters would not be as well-developed because it's a lot easier to write a character, in my opinion, than it is to write yourself because I don't know myself. You know, that's the whole point is I'm still trying to learn who I am. And so what I did is took a little bit of myself, put it in Caleb, and then filled him out with other things, made him a lot more sympathetic, in my opinion, than I am. Um, and, and then I took a little of myself and put it in Randall and then filled him out uh, with other things, almost like, you know, his rich upbringing and private school and all that shit, you know, in the, on the East Coast. That was almost stuff like I imagined, you know, I wouldn't be great if my family owned huge swaths of land in the American West and had all, you know, these business connections on the East Coast. So that's what I was able to do is combine the fiction with the personal. And that, I think, I hope, kept it steady enough to keep the reader drawn in on an emotional level, but also keep the story going and not fall into one of those. There's a lot of books out there that are, it's almost like a memoir of, you know, and, and, and then this girl dumped me when I was 17 and, you know, I was really sad about it. You, you know what I mean? And so I do. I used to write on, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, even on more of a philosophy thing. Do, do you say you used to write that stuff? Yeah, when I no, when your I was blog, your blog was yeah. <laughs> was is if you're still keeping up with it amazing and I think I I, I don't know if I ever emailed you but I think one of the emails I said you need to run with that there's no oh, there's yeah like it was so personal mm -hmm. that it had no choice you had no choice but to be emotionally involved like holy shit like this is so weird that this is the second time that I'm seeing you. It's not quite face to face. Yeah. But like I've I read so much of your blog that I'm like, oh well, yeah. Well, yeah. That that one time she was doing the stuff. Uh, you know, she came <laughs> from college, and then she went over to this guy's house, and then she was singing. And like, you know, I know so many of your stories. This feels yeah. a little unfair. <laughs> yeah. I see. Like that. That's another thing I wanted to talk to you about because like that kind of writing for me, it wasn't even like I even had to ever think about it. It just came out, right? Whereas fiction, 
I don't want to say it felt like I had to go over hurdles to get even anything remotely mediocre, but it was kind of like that mentally because it just wasn't as intuitive and natural for me. Like I could, I had like a voice, but I didn't necessarily have the stories and I didn't have like that fine literature and fiction writer kind of way of writing. I I, I don't know. It just wasn't, it didn't, it didn't come naturally to me, but the stories I wrote on my blog, like about my life, like I said, like, I didn't even really have to think about it. And as I grew older, like the stories evolved with me. So it wasn't just so much about like, oh, here's a funny story, but I started to incorporate like my views on society and people yes. and like gender roles and things like that. So the stories gained depth as, as I did as a person, but that wasn't even necessarily intentional. Again, it just sort of came out that way. So when you write fiction, like, have you, has fiction always been like what you naturally just like were you gravitated to and it just came naturally to you? You know, kind of, it's kind of a way to hide. Like, for instance, the stories that you were telling were even before you started making kind of more of the societal observations, which I love, by the way. Mm -hmm. I love when you, when you started kind of going a little political bent to it and all that, because I, I could see you growing as, again, not just as a writer, but it's like, I don't know what the right word is. I use the word thinker, but that's such a terrible mm -hmm. word. Um, it doesn't even sound good. But um, <laughs> but even when you were just just the observations that, that you were making in recalling stories about yourself in high school and college, you know, right after college, your romantic relationships, there were these powerful observations that you made. And because it was your blog and because they were true, that's like that's like big ball status, right? It's like you fucking put yourself out there. For me, fiction is a way to go little ball status and hide my observations, right? Like you won't, you won't see me on Facebook saying like, oh, like I think religion is fucking stupid, right? But yeah. if you read some of my books, I will not outwardly criticize because again, I don't want to preach, but I will certainly hope that I take the reader into a place that makes them question certain things and opens up you know, philosophy, you know, to certain things. And so for me, fiction is an outlet, but it's also a way to hide. I don't know if my grandmother was ever like, I read your book and, you know, I can't believe you said, I'd be like, oh, it's fiction. No, I'm like, don't worry about it. You know, it's fine. Yeah. And that's kind of the difference though, is that I never felt natural saying I'm Nick and I believe this, right. Or, or I have observed this. And so that was what was so captivating to me about your writing is right. it did come naturally to you. Yeah. And so I was immediately like, holy shit, like she, she literally just said that. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of a give and take too, because like, or one builds off the other. If you're completely explicit in what you're writing, then I know, you know, hey, I just read this thing about Elena fucking doing mushrooms and, you know, getting down. Yeah. Well, I know she's not holding anything back. I know she's not bullshitting me, right? That means if you make an observation, a societal observation, I know that's not coming from some place of, you know, like almost like social justice warrior, like, look at me, I'm so fucking virtuous. Like, right. no, like you're literally saying like, this is as real as it fucking gets. And I was just never comfortable being that real unless it was hidden in, in fiction. And so, you know, that's kind of part of it, honestly, is it's mm. a way to have my voice heard without having to be my voice. That's so funny. Cause I, I guess, cause I'm coming from a place as a writer where it's not just honest, like it's like brutally honest. Like, yeah. I'm just, you know, like yeah. you've read, so you know, it's like, it's super frank. I do not hold anything back. Sometimes I read back things that I wrote. I'm just like, oh my God. 
<laughs> right. Like, who is this girl? Like, she's out of her mind. But I never knew, I never knew how to communicate any other way but that. So it's funny that you would, you would feel like you need almost, almost like a wizard behind the curtain kind of thing, right? You're, you use it as a, what's the word? Not vehicle. No, it is a vehicle. I mean, that's that's exactly what it is. And I think a lot of it has to do with I grew up in a small town in East Texas, super conservative, basically don't make waves. Right. Yeah. So I think that's just a way to sneak it in there. I don't know if you wrote about it. At least I can't remember like your exact upbringing of what your family life was like and like how y'all communicated. My family would we will ignore the problem and act like it doesn't exist. That's my whole entire family. And so to be bold and in your face, confrontation wise, writing wise, any of that, it's just not something I was ever comfortable with. And so I think that's part of it, you know, and and I, again, I don't know if that was your experience was the opposite of that, but whatever you have that you tapped into when you were writing those blogs, I mean, I understand what you're saying about fiction. And I actually did read some of your sci-fi manuscript that you sent me in the query letter to that. And I no, I actually thought it was great, but it did not the the way that your blog just grabs people and you know that's why like I don't know what the scene what the culture scene is in New York I'm just down here in Texas drinking a beer but it felt like it just really could have said something about what it's like to be in New York and trying and trying to to make it as not a complete degenerate and not as a fucking high-rise trust fund kid like there was something really really middle-class, hardworking, honest about it, you know? And I think that is missing from a lot of literature, right? We tend to gravitate toward like the Austin sisters and the privileged stuff or like the super poor in the in the gutter, dirt and grime stuff. Um, and there, there's a place for both of that. There's not a lot of that realness from, from the middle, you know? Mm. I don't really know enough about the literature world to say. Is that just because that's where people naturally gravitate to as, as readers and that's what sells and that's why they don't push yeah I mean it that's what I would guess like yeah. it, it's so dominated by sales like I was talking to my wife about it earlier all the old white guys James Patterson Stephen King yeah. uh Tom Clancy Coons, they're still churning out stuff and making yeah. a gajillion dollars right? right but I think that that day and age is is coming to an end at least I you know at least I'm hopeful of that. And so I think that's something It goes back to, do I want to be cynical or do I want to be hopeful? And so again, maybe that's just me being really naive, thinking that the publishing industry is changing for the better. But, uh, but I don't know, I've liked what I've seen from the last couple of years. And so I just want to, you know, give, give some credit to the people that are out there hustling and working their ass off to, to give us those diverse voices, you know? It's interesting you say that because it's just another way, another industry is reflective of what's going on in society as a whole. Absolutely. And on the one hand, do I think that people should get preferential treatment just because we're in a moment that's sort of pushing diversity? Like, are you just going to publish some, like a Black author for the sake that they're Black? I think that's absurd. And I, I hate corporations that do that because it's so clearly pandering. But if these are actually talented people that in other times wouldn't get the recognition that they deserve, and now they're finally be giving a chance because of the moment that we're in, that's a completely yeah. different story. So if the publishing company is more the latter, which is like, I think what you're saying, then that's a wonderful thing. But also in regards to this older white male writer, you know, the examples you gave, I sort of feel like it's almost it's almost like saying goodbye to that whole 80s era of man 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I feel absolutely. like we're sort of moving into that place. At least I see it with younger generations, even my generation a little bit, where that kind of male role model type, right? Like the douchebag, really. Yeah. is completely being frowned upon now and like yeah. if you're like that it's actually a detriment it's not going to get you ahead and right. it's more about being more empathetic being more true to yourself like having your own identity like defining what it is to be a man for yourself and so maybe the publishing industry is also either they're taking note of it or they're sort of trying to get ahead of the curve and like the, the trends that they see might happen in the next five, 10 years, which I think is going to be more diverse, younger writers. I mean, like I said, like it, it's, it's almost in everything. Like it's in politics, it's in business, right. it's everywhere. It's just weird sometimes to think about it because, you know, like I'll watch these, these news clips with videos of footage from like the Senate floor and like 30 years ago, and it's the same fucking people. <laughs> and so I'm like, it's going to be so weird when they're actually gone. Like, <laughs> You yeah. didn't know what the landscape is going to look like. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and I love your point about so there's a way to to just react to the moment that is not sustainable and that it, but also we need to invest on that front end. You know, what what are we doing writing program wise in low socioeconomic public schools, right? Because that's where you change this stuff. So if you want more diversity in your stories, more diversity in your industry, then go invest on the front end, which is, you know, what, how much money are you giving to programs that are, you know, taking young black filmmakers and giving them the access to resources, the camera equipment, all this different stuff. And so that's a way to, to, to reflect the moment, but also have a sustainable impact, right? But it is, it is interesting how you talk about how corporations pander the fucking commercials that we've seen throughout the pandemic, you know, and, and throughout the, this movement for social justice and all that. I mean, it's just, it, it's insane. And it's like, they want us to just completely forget that they're literally trying to sell us something. But, but I like the changes and everything. And I think it just, it does reflect the changing demographics of America. And, and that's all a good thing. Um, I just, you know, I hope that these folks do it the right way in the, the true and honest way and the, the more sustainable way, quite frankly. Right. I mean, it's hard. Like when my family and I, like we get together a lot of times, especially in the past four or five years, we talk a lot about like the political situation and, you know, the climate and, and what's going on and, you know, the problems, potential solutions to the problems. And a lot of times the, the solutions come back to like the way you were saying it, like the front end, right? Like you got to get it at the root of it. You can't, you right. know, like get these kids when they're kids, like you, and, and part of the problem I think is if you do that, then 15 years, 20 years down the road, the problems that exist now won't exist there, but what about in the meantime? And so right. I think that there's there's a problem in this country with needing short-term solutions and it's more reactionary than proactive and it's a really shitty combination and I think the effect is you wind up just not doing anything and yeah. it's right. really unfortunate right. and like you can argue till you're blue in the face but at the end of the day right. we need to do something and I feel right. like we just are doing nothing so for so long. <laughs> yeah. Here's a really depressing anecdote. I was working at the Texas State Capitol in 2013. I was the 83rd legislative session and I was the legislative director for a state representative. And one of my responsibilities was writing the end of session newsletter that was going to go out to all of this guy's constituents. 
And so it's basically just a, a big summary of all the things that you know we accomplished. And, and so I'm writing it and I'm talking about how we address water conservation and public education funding and, and all these topics, right? And in every one, it's like, but there's still work to do because you know it, it couldn't be perfect and all that. And it's just the nature of politics. Yeah. Well, I'm... <laughs> I'm writing this and I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to look back at some past newsletters to just kind of see, you know, the tone and, and, you know, what's some good stuff to include in there. And I found a a newsletter from Texas legislative session in like the eighties. And it was almost like word for word, the same (laughs) topics, like, well, we're trying to address water conservation and public education. And it's like, you're right. We just keep, it's the same yeah. problems over and over and our unwillingness to to take any bold action because we we take these little baby steps that mm-hmm. everybody can agree on pat themselves on the back on but like the bold action and I don't understand some of it I say bold action some of it's not even it's, it's truly not, even. not it's not bold but like <laughs> they've like the two divided sides have like you know have made it seem that way but like right. universal health care that's not fucking bold everybody else does it Everyone else does it. We fight tooth and nail to keep this so obviously flawed, you know, system. It's stuff like that. It's like, if we can't move the needle on that, then is there, is there any hope? I mean, you know, in, uh, what was it? 2012 with the Sandy Hook shooting. That was kind of finally be the thing. Yeah. Cause like school shootings, they're all terrible, right? We don't need to like fucking rank them, but little kids, little, little babies. If we can watch that and, and then go, no, we're not going to try any, we're just not going to try. Yeah. Like, and I'm not saying I, I get, I get a lot of the philosophy. I'm from Texas. I grew up, you yeah. know, a gun owner and all that stuff. And I get at least the philosophy from some gun rights people who are like, well, I don't want to be without my gun or criminals don't listen to the laws or, you know, they're going to find a gun anyway. And I, and I get that stuff, but how can you not try anything when there are so many other countries who have laid out blueprints of how to do this? You know, Australia had- They had one shooting. They had one mass yeah. shooting. I think it was yeah. like four people that died. Right, exactly. Automatically uh, passed the legislation. Australia, yeah. New Zealand, you know, uh, Great Britain, all these different countries, they've at least tried these different things. In other words, what the fuck would it hurt to try? If something, whatever, you know, conservatives are worried about is going to happen, if something like that happened, all right, fine, like flip it and let's go back to how it was. But I just don't understand how we don't even try to to make changes on stuff just to see if it would be better. It just baffles me and it's disheartening and it makes you want to check out. I don't blame them for that. Like there was a time when I was a little younger when I was super passionate about politics. And if somebody was like, oh, I'm not really political, it like I took that personally. I'm like, no, you've got to you've got to fucking invest in this is the society and we're all in this together. And at this point, if somebody's like, yeah, I try not to just, I try not to watch the news. I'm like, hey man, good for you. Like, fuck it. Mental health. Am I right? A little self-care? Yeah. No, I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't really politically engaged or, or informed at all until 2015. And so the past five years have been, six years, have been a real learning experience for me in so many ways. And it's like, I'm coming to all these realizations, politically, societally, whatever. And I would talk to my older regulars about this and they're like, well, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because these problems have existed forever and you're not the first person to get frustrated with xyz and you know yep. realize that there's an issue in this system and breakdown here and whatever like these are things that have been happening forever and so it's like you said it's so disheartening because it's like well are we going to try nothing like we're just we're just going to keep on doing it exactly the same way we've done it i try and keep an open mind and for my own sanity when when there's a political 
breaking news thing, I, I, I sort of don't really pay attention to it. And I just try and focus on like, what are the answers? What are the problems and what are the answers to the problems? What are potential ways you could fix these problems? I don't know. There's not many politicians that I see that do that. I've talked about this on the show before, but like the irony is if they just did that, they just focus on actual answers and actual solutions, you wouldn't even need to fundraise. <laughs> you would just get reelected. <laughs> well, I'm, but is that true though? Because that's, I, I think that, and, and I'm not saying it's not, but I think that's one of the problems is we're so into divided into our camps. And by the way, when I say things like that, I'm not, what I hate is when people go, well, both sides do it. Yes, I know both sides are guilty of a lot of bad shit, but one side does not equal the fucking other. You know, if okay. if, if the liberals get a little too far left, it's not the same thing as people storming the fucking Capitol and killing police officers. Back to your point about if people would just focus on the problems and trying to solve something. I wish that that was true, but I honestly don't know, having been in the political realm in Texas for a little bit, you have to throw so much red meat to your base in order to fundraise, in order to do anything. And anytime you try, like, so our guy here in Texas, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who yeah. ran Ted Cruz, he kind of did that a little bit. Now, he obviously, he still did a lot of fundraising and, and was kind of a Hollywood darling, which the Republicans here in Texas used against him, because God forbid somebody from California, uh, you know, thinks that you're a good dude. Yeah. But he was kind of like, he worked with Republicans in Congress on certain measures, and he tried the whole reach across the aisle thing to just to find solutions, right? Let's at least try something. And he got slammed by a lot of I remember that. Democrats saying like, oh, this dude's not really a Democrat. Look, he voted, you know, alongside conservatives on, you know, X percent of the time. And so we're just so divided in those camps that like, it's like anytime you try to even a little bit, and I heard you say this on one of your episodes, you were talking to uh, the journalist from Canada and, uh, and you were talking about how when you, when you start to hear fiance's family, congratulations, by the way, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you, you do it with that open mind because like you want to kind of hear just yeah. what they have to say, what, how did they get to where they're at, that kind of thing. But a lot of times when you do that, it, it's, you can be demonized by your own people, you know I mean? Yeah. And in cancel culture, bam, you know, you can be done. You can right. be done like it, just with a snap of a finger. And that is not the way to have honest and intellectual discourse, you know? And so it's certainly from uh, the political standpoint, if you're a politician, you're scared shitless to ever look at something that's not a tried and true stamp by your party. And no, so no, no, it's, that's, it. what, that's how we keep doing the same shit over and over again, right? Is the Democrats can only throw out these two ideas and the conservatives can only throw out these two ideas. And anytime somebody wants to get a little funky with it, and again, right. these, are, these are not crazy ideas, yeah. right? All yeah. these other countries are doing this shit. But anytime somebody wants to do that, they get absolutely ostracized, uh, you know, for, by their team or whatever. And that's, that's depressing as shit, man. Again, it makes you want to check out and just say, yeah. fuck it, y'all go do whatever you want. Again, that's why I love that I write fiction, because if somebody <laughs> has a problem with what I wrote, I'll just be like, look, so it's fiction. It's, it's a story. It's made up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote an article. This is years ago. I actually was a contributing writer, one time contributing writer to Elite Daily. Do you remember that online? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I had this idea to talk about, what, what did I call the title? The Rapid Diminishment of the Man's Man. Because I was talking about the changes I had been noticing in the male identity, right? The, the, the where, where have all the cowboys gone? Yeah. 
Right. right? I, I think I even quoted that in the article. I don't know. Well, no, that's, yeah, that you did. I read the article. Oh, God. So here's what happened with that article. Uh, what they published was not what I gave them. They edited that thing beyond recognition. Wow. And it was really unfortunate because my thesis, like my, my, the whole idea behind it was that the identity being shifted back to the hands of the individual is a really powerful thing, but it's up to men to decide now, like, what do they want to be? I had observed that men were kind of going through an adjustment period because the whole notion of gender identity was sort of shifting, but that is not how the article came across in the published version. <laughs> and to this day, I'm like, I don't ever want to be famous. I mean, I would own it, you know, if it ever came to that point, not that I think it will, but like, I was really hesitant to submit anything as a writer to, you know, try and get my name out there. Cause it was like one Google search and you find this article, the article doesn't read well. It makes it seem like, I think, you know, women should be in the kitchen and men should be, you know, right. It, it, and, it's, it sounds like you think that uh, men are too soft and, you know, right. you want almost like you want that eighties version of the, of exactly. the dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, no. listen, they're fun, like to drink with, but <laughs> that's exactly, that's a, that's a great point is like one Google search or, you know, yeah. look deep on Twitter or whatever. And again, this is where nuance comes into play. And I think that's the key word in all of this is their circumstance of the times and all this mm -hmm. stuff. I, I'm almost like cultish with Bill Maher lately because he's been, he's been on this whole campaign on real time of like quit canceling people yeah. talk to them because i think a lot of times what it does is it pushes folks further away yeah right like you're you're feeding into the whether it's right or wrong in terms of the stand you're making you're feeding into the narrative from the trump loving republicans that are like the liberals are here to be the thought police and to not let you do or say anything which is not true right. but we, we oftentimes shoot ourselves in the foot give them that ammunition. They're often hold themselves to standards that no one else is, is held to. It's like when Al Franken resigned from his Senate seat, Democrats forced him to do that, not Republicans. Then Republicans will have some crazy scandal, you know, fucking a kid in a bathroom. And they're like, no, nah, he, you know, he told Jesus that he was sorry. And so we're good. We're just going to reelect him. And so what did we just do? We just shot ourselves in the foot. Like we lost a Democratic Senator and Republicans are never going to do that. They're never going to self-police. You know, and so anyway, I just, you got me fired up. God damn it. <laughs> this has that effect on people. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like with the political stuff, something I, I wanted to bring up earlier, I forgot until just now. It, it's two things. One is, I want to know your thoughts on the whole concept of individualism being such an ingrained part of our country's culture. Because I'm not blaming that for some of the issues that we're dealing with right now, but I do think it is a contributing factor. That notion of, I look out for me and just me. My responsibility is to myself. I want what I want when I want it. And if it doesn't affect me, I don't care. Like these are all things that I'm seeing like the negative side of individualism. Cause I think there's there's something really amazing that you could, you could be the poorest kid from the poorest community, go against all the odds and become whatever successful position and whatever field you might wind up working in. But the downside is it's like there's a selfishness. And so I think that has sort of bled into politics a little bit, because I think when you combine that, that the negative sides of individualism with all the issues that are going on in our society, right? Like 
the income disparity, the lack of, of wages rising, economic insecurity, food insecurity, public education, going down the tubes, all these things. It's like there's a fear and then there's like this clinging to, I need to take care of myself and whatever that means, I'm going to do it. So what I wish would happen more than anything else is that, you know, it's not even about politicians working together, which I mean, it is, but it's also about politicians recognizing those trends and actually giving a shit about it and doing what they can to fix those problems. Cause that in turn will make a lot of this tribalism disappear and, and cancel culture too. Like, I think a lot of it comes from a place of, I feel powerless. And so however I can, you know, assert my power, have my voice heard, I'm going to do it. I don't really know how to to fix that, but what are your thoughts on on that being a part of our our society? And do you think that we could move past certain problems if that notion of individualism is is here to stay? Yeah, I mean that's it's a very insightful observation and one that I completely agree with. My wife and I have talked about this, yeah. had this conversation a million times over the last ten years. Is and, and this is great because coming from Texas, right? We're the Lone Star State, and we're all about rugged individualism and the cowboy way and all that horseshit that you hear. Um, and so now I'll piss off all my Western fans. <laughs> but look, this is this is true. Individualism, to your point, there are some great things uh, about striving to do whatever, but it really it has made us lose touch with the fact that we are a society. And I think that's why we can't get over some of these hurdles that these other countries have when it comes to things like universal health care. It's like, why the fuck would I pay for somebody else's health care if I can't afford it? And it's like, wait a minute, what are you, why would you not? Right? Like, right. that's just, it's fucking insane to me. Yeah. So, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, because we fought that good fight against communism and, and all these things in the middle part of the 20th century, we almost kind of like swung too far on the pendulum to where now basic socialist ideas are demonized. Oh my um, God, yeah. And, and we don't see the benefit of acting like an actual society. Can we overcome that? That's tough, man, because as much as I love many of these concepts, you know, when you look at the Nordic countries, when you look at a lot of European countries, actually, we are so diverse in comparison. And so it's not just individualism that's given us a problem, but it, but it is tribalism and racism and the lack of mixing of cultures. Like we have all these different cultures and they're not mixing. And so that makes it really hard to all pull together as one, right? So we talk about, my wife and I have, again, have this conversation a lot, and we talk about how the pendulum can swing so far that it can just kind of invert on itself, right? If we want to all pull together in the same society, we have to start blending more. And I, and I think that used to be the goal. But again, if we're, if we're literally talking about moving forward and getting over some of these hurdles, you have to desegregate more. But it seems like it always starts with good intentions and then swings so far to the other side that, that it becomes like this weird antithism of, of itself. I don't know. I don't know where, I don't know how we work nuance back into it, but I do know that from an individualism perspective, man, that is just, it's so toxic. It's so toxic to, to the, to the goals of any society. And you always hear from conservatives, well, if you don't like it, just leave. This is America. And so like, I kind of want to say the same thing, which is like, if you don't like 
America and Americans, all Americans and all of us pulling together, then fuck off, man. Like, you know, the whole taxes are bad. It's like, if something goes wrong and you uh, firefighters come to your house, you're, that's taxes that are paying that. If you are go to a public school, that's taxes, drive on public roads, right. benefit from any kind of public transportation. I mean, we are a socialist country. We just don't admit it, you know? And, and so because we don't admit it and embrace it, we can't move forward with the other ideas that we haven't yet gotten to. Last thing I'll say on this, Michael Moore has a documentary called Where to Invade Next. If you haven't seen it, it's absolutely beautiful because he goes from country to country and shows things that each country does better than America, right? Because he's like, we invaded Iraq and took their oil. Let's see where, what other country can we invade and take some of their ideals. And so they do school nutrition thing. In France, they do um, workers' rights in Italy, the prison system in Portugal. But then at the end, he brings it all home for those flag-waving Americans and says everything that we just talked about is an idea that America came up with first, right? We were the first ones to really push forward the labor movement. And we were the first ones to push forward you know, uh, public education and all these things. And it's just, we just, somewhere along the way, we just lost our way. We just fucking stopped progressing and all these other countries said hey we're going to do what america did but we're going to just keep we're going to keep going so yeah i don't know i don't know if it really is an original sin situation to where we're just so steeply rooted in racism in this country that we can't ever all pull together but i don't know again just like talking about in writing i like to ask a lot more questions and give answers yeah, yeah there's a lot of questions i don't know the fucking answer so when you were talking about the pendulum swinging and going too far and almost like reaching their way. What I noticed, especially with things like the Me Too movement, it started off, right, as this this idealistic, empowering thing and like women could have a voice and like hold men accountable and shift the whole power dynamic and all this stuff. But then like, and I've seen this with other movements since then, it's it all kind of gets muddied and it gets kind of hairy. And then it sort of like evolves into this monster that it wasn't even intended to be. And it gets pulled in all these different directions from all these different media outlets and the narratives that they push. And then, you know, scandals come out and then can you disregard what that person said? And like, how do we judge people and, and blah, 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 like all these things. But now on the other side of it, and I was watching Pretend It's a City on, on Netflix. It's a docu-series where Martin Scorsese interviews Fran Leibowitz, a, a writer and a thinker, you could say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even though I know you don't like that word. But you know, <laughs> they were talking about the Me Too movement. And she had said, you know, however many years it was after the Me Too movement happened, she was like, at the end of the day, the women that first came out were like, what? Like Hollywood women celebrities, right? People that you would kind of be like, I mean of course this would happen to you. Let's look, look at the industry you're in, right? It's almost par for the course, if you will. But who won in the end? It was maids in motels. It was servers in the restaurants. It was the women who are not those celebrities that no one gives yeah. a shit about. They are the women who now have power in their hands that they never did. So like any other pendulum that swings, I think it they all kind of have the same sort of trajectory and journey. You know, it starts off with good intentions and then gets out of control. And then maybe we'll never see the, the results, like the end result um, and the good that can come out of it. But I do think it winds up sort of like almost settling down and the readjustment eases into itself. And then society 
experiences whatever change culturally, whatever it does. Do I think that that will happen with things like cancel culture? I don't know, because I think it is so tied to certain economic and, and structural problems in this country. But I mean, I, I hope so. I hope it's just maybe the readjustment period is just lasting a little too long. But I think until we do something systemically to give some power back to people, they're just going to continue to seize it wherever they can. So I, I've talked about this book so many times it's called Utopia for Realists. It's by this guy, Rutger Bregman. It's a great read. But like what, what I really loved so much about it was the ideas that he talks about and ideas that aren't necessarily even new but ideas that have existed for centuries and they've just sort of been dressed up differently depending on what century they appear in next. Like UBI is, is, is one of the program ideas he talks about. So when you were talking about, you don't know when it all changed and we sort of stopped progressing, that's something that he talks about in the book because there is actually a timeline for that. A lot of it started in the 80s, partially because of Reagan and Reaganomics, but also because of the birth of the yuppie and you know the birth of the hedge fund and investment firms like that changed everything because what happened was those were the people that made money and so what he says in the bug and this is really interesting is that parents especially now don't set their children up for what the children might be best at or what the child might really be interested in or in some sort of creative innovative pursuit necessarily a lot of times they set them on a path for success and success is dependent on like what jobs are going to provide you a living, you know, be able to support yourself, a family, potentially buy a home, whatever it is that you want in life. So what did those jobs become after the 80s? Mostly financial. So you had a lot of people that might have become innovators, inventors, doctors, you know, whatever sort of position that might actually benefit society. And they turned to the financial sector because that's where the money was and you can't blame right. them but I do think that in in the book he says you know it sort of put a stopper on any real sort of progress or innovation that we could have made as a country because it in turn almost shifted the values and it does kind of tie into individualism a little bit right like you're you're trying to make as much money as you can you're not right. trying to make money for other people. Well, I mean, if they're paying you, maybe, but <laughs> you're not trying to like do anything that benefits society. Cause that's just not where your values are. It's not where your mindset is. And so when I, when I talk to conservative friends, I, I really try and tell them to, to read this book. Cause it's not even like you need to agree with the ideas or the programs policies that he is suggesting could help so many of the issues we're facing in America, especially it's more just like it completely opens your mind, right? Yeah. Like I am not necessarily somebody that has answers either. I like to think about, oh, this might be a good policy. And then I'm like, what the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> but I read a book like that and it's just like, holy shit. And again, it's not even like the things that he suggests are completely novel ideas. Like these, a lot of them have existed for centuries, but it's more about how would you implement that today? And what could that potentially open the doors to, right? right? And it's like the, the possibilities, the potential, it's almost endless if we just did, you know, all these little shifts, if we all sacrificed a little bit, not even all of us, like some of the stuff he suggests would not even affect me or you really. It's like right. uber, uber wealthy. So, and, and then, you know, conservative people, like as soon as they hear UBI, they write it off. And I think that, <laughs> and I, I don't know it 
where this originated, if it's always been part of the conservative ideology and, and narrative, but the notion that taxation is control. And right. any sort of government involvement is you becoming dependent on them. And I mean, the logical person in me is like, yeah, I mean, I can see, I can see that. Yeah. Someone being afraid of that, that makes sense to me because you don't want to be dependent on anyone, you know, the individualism thing again. You want to be able to just provide for yourself, do whatever you want, you know, go chase that wild frontier out west and stake your claim, right? Like these are all things that I think are in our DNA as Americans. But at the same time, it's just like, but you can't live in your own personal private utopia. That's right. not how it works. It's a nice right. thought. I wish that was true, but it's not <laughs> reality. Well, I mean, it, the, the problem, or one of the shit, one of the many problems, though, with the conservative ethos is that it's such hypocrisy. And I'm not saying that the Democrats don't have hypocritical shit. They do. But sure. this whole notion of like, oh, well, you know, we spend too much money the budget's too bloated and we want to be fiscally somewhere down the line this whole narrative of the fiscally responsible you know republican like no man they spend just as much as the fucking democrats they just don't tax they just don't tax when they do it i remember when obama was president every fucking day going to work it was have you seen where we are with the deficit oh Oh, yeah And all of a sudden, when Trump's president, like, you don't hear a fucking word about that. And again, I'm not, I'm sure that there are some conservatives who could be, bring up some anecdotes and say, well, what about when Democrats complained about this, but then did the exact same thing? But it's just about recognizing both parties or corporations that are trying to sell us on voting for them, right? It's not going to be that kind of stuff that brings us together, but I don't know what what it's going to be. You know, I know that the thought has been kicked around for decades about some kind of mandatory, not necessarily mandatory military service, but mandatory government Mm -hmm. service, you know, like after high school to where at least you're all forced to be anyway, invested in the country. I don't know if that kind of goes against a little bit of that kind of American DNA of like not being forced to do shit, but like, there's gotta be something where we can all get on the same page and be proud. I mean, and this is where I say that the two parties are not the same. And this is a question I love throwing out. So I'll throw it out to you. And it's been, it's been one that I've asked for, you know, many years now. And I, I love the variety of responses, but if you remember, and this will be especially important to you as a New Yorker, 9-11 happened horrific and nobody could disagree that it was horrific. And for weeks and months, and I mean, dare I say even years after that, there's flags waving. President Bush gets a standing ovation from both chambers. You know, his approval rating is this historic thing. And basically, we as a country, and certainly our representatives, just handed him the keys and said, this is not a time to be divisive. This is not a time to be partisan. Like, let's fucking do this. Now, we all know what the administration did is they shit the bed with it, but that's not the point. The, the question I have is, Can you imagine if a year or two into Obama's term, Mm -hmm. 9-11 happened? What would the response look like from Republicans? Would it, I I cannot imagine that it would have been the unified front that Democrats showed at that time. And so that's why I just don't know if we could ever be on the same page. I mean, what what do you think? I mean, I would think they would criticize him every step of the way and they would 
if he did one single executive order, why aren't you passing legislation? If you tried to pass your legislation, I don't agree with this legislation. I mean, that's what they did his entire term. And right. I'm sure conservatives will say, well, the Democrats did the same thing to Trump. And I was like, yeah, well, I can't deny that. But also what sort of ideals was Trump pushing? You know, right. it's one thing, like, if you're going to do this hypothetical of 9-11 happening during Obama's term and then him trying to grapple with terrorism, protecting the country, like all these right. things the safety of Americans, which if you ask any conservative is the job of a president, right? right? Like all these things, I don't know how you could turn around and say, but the Democrats would act the same way and did act the same way towards Trump, but Trump wasn't trying really to do any of that. He might've said- well, and, and, and that's my point is, yeah. is after 9-11, what the Democrats did, and again, we're just talking about the elected officials and even yeah. just the majority of them. There were some, you know, Democrats who were like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about all this, but like, yeah. the, you know, you want the Patriot Act? You need the Patriot Act to keep us right. safe? Okay, bam, Patriot Act. You want to you wanna invade Iraq, even though they had nothing to do with 9-11? Yeah, sure, fuck it, let's go. And again, I'm not even saying that that's the answer, but I'm saying that was at least a, a modern example of, and the only one really that I can think of, of one of our political parties saying we have the back of a president of the opposing party, right? Like that's really the last time it fucking happened. It didn't happen for Obama with Republicans. It didn't happen for Trump with Democrats. I just can't fucking envision a world where 9-11 happens and Obama is president yeah. and Republicans don't immediately, you know, you mentioned like executive orders and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm talking, they would have said he planned it. There's right. still, what is it, like 30-something percent of Republican voters still think he's, you know, Islamic Brotherhood or, you know, whatever. I mean, it just, that's where when I say like, oh, both parties have their flaws, mm -hmm. when it comes down to it at the end of the day, I'm a liberal. And, and so, of course, I believe in my party more than the other one. While I think that Democrats have a lot to learn and can do a lot in terms of just talking to conservatives, it, it's also kind of like the we don't negotiate with terrorists, right? Like, how the fuck am I gonna am I gonna see eye to eye on somebody that's just like, well, I care more about money than that little kid dying of cancer or something. You know what I mean? And that's a very hyperbolic example, but like that's no, but that's what we're talking about. You know, is like is like there's if you fundamentally don't believe that if you have the ability to help someone that you should, like if that's not your credo as a person then that's going to be really tough for us to see eye to eye on policy. I don't know where we go from there, but I do think that it was very insightful for you to cite individualism because I think that's a huge thing is we built it up so much for so long in this country that just like all these other movements and ideals, it, it is now run rampant. Yeah, I don't know. They just, they believe in some weird American dream that doesn't exist. And they believe that if they give anything to social programs, we have this bloated defense spending. Yeah. We subsidize oil companies. We do we do all these things that the conservatives supposedly are against when it comes to spending money, and we don't hear a fucking peep because it's all political. It's all about where your priorities are. And I don't know. All, all I know is that you have depressed me thoroughly um, <laughs> by, by bringing all this up. Payback for your uh, book. I'm kidding. I'm just yeah, exactly. I'm just gonna have to go write it. I'm gonna write it all out. It's like a sweat sweating out a drinking session. <laughs> Yeah, I try not. I try not to to let it get me down. You know, that's why I I really enjoy the job that I do because I do get to t actually talk to people, and it really does keep things in perspective. It keeps you more grounded, I guess, because at the end of the day, so much of what you read and and watch and and observe even 
it can be it can be a little hysterical I guess but when you actually talk to people it's just like oh it's maybe not as crazy as it seems it's just you know it's it's more of the reality of like things not actually getting passed that gives me anxiety but sure all I can do is like continue to try and talk to people and like open up those doors and hope that they do it in turn because I think I think it's a really valuable thing when someone actually hears you and so if I can do that for people and then they can take that feeling and pay it forward I mean who knows right I think so much of what has to happen is going to have to happen on an individual level but also at the same time there's some things that can't wait (laughs) for that to like seep into our legislative branches like this needs to happen now that stuff I I'm I'm not sure about but yeah, I guess I guess we'll see. To our kind of what we were saying about individualism, but also about everybody pulling together is, you know, you're talking about you have these different folks that come into the bar that you're able to actually talk to and hear these different opinions. I don't know what a New York City conservative looks like or even somebody that a uh, conservative that would choose to vacation in New York They're City. Usually white. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I can guess that. <laughs> But down the street from where I live, there's a a cattle gate with a giant Trump flag hung on it that says Trump 2020 make liberals cry again. Mm. Right. So that's the kind of stuff is like we're asking people to listen to the other side. And yet my wife and I push our daughter in her stroller past this cattle guard. Our country is so geographically culturally, everything diverse already really is hard to all have the same experience, you know? And so like, if you're asking Texas liberals to to sit down and talk to Texas conservatives, or let me rephrase that, rural Texas conservatives, because we have our big city conservatives as well that are like the white, wealthy folks who a, a lot of the conservative economic policies benefit them. But I'm talking about like the folks that for whatever reason, they have not seen the fruits of the GOP policies. They're living in a trailer park, and yet they are still vehemently like, fuck yeah, we love Trump. It's it's almost impossible to really have that discourse because there's just such a disconnect to begin with. And so maybe that is where it starts, though, is with you talking to folks at the bar and and maybe it spreads from there. But at some point, if if what this discussion you and I are having is about progress and about answers, then at some point it's like, fuck it. Like we'll do it without them. Yeah. And I think people always will get left behind, but you know, when it comes to talking to people, I mean, I don't really think my podcast is going to change the country. Mark the tape right there. (laughs) But about uh, the pandemic, like I was so grateful for it at first because I've been praying (laughs) as much as I pray since 2012, actually for people to either regain or learn some sort of self-awareness to go through a journey of self-discovery, to understand who they are and what they actually want. I noticed since 2012, cause I, you know, I get, cause I bike everywhere. So I would notice people's attention, you know, even walking down the sidewalk, like it's almost like you are not there. And it like drives me crazy. Like it's one of my biggest fucking pet peeves. And as a New Yorker, I should probably just like let her roll off my back, but I can't, like I hate it. But that has like been in the steady decline since 2012. And so when it came to COVID, I was like, oh, this is great. We're finally going to get this pause. Everyone can just take a step back, take a breath, do this work. Those who could, I, I know it's like a luxury for, for most people, but even if you were struggling, I feel like this year would have impacted you on some level in terms of 
What is really important to me? What really matters to me? What are the things that were maybe distracting me before in my lifestyle before that now I don't have anymore that has maybe brought some things to the service or, or given me clarity or whatever it is that happened a little bit. But it's that kind of thing, like, right, conversations like this that I have with people who don't necessarily think like me, I think not bring them to realizations, but maybe give them a different perspective and make them realize, I don't know why I so firmly believe in this. I don't know why I so right. firmly think that this is the right way. It's not even about challenging them. It's just about being something that makes them feel heard, but also like you speak to them in a way that doesn't make them defensive. And then, right. you know, it opens up their mind. It's opened up my mind, you know, not always in the best way. Like sometimes I'd be like sent videos of Ben Shapiro and I needed to take a shower after, like they weren't always positive experiences, <laughs> but I would do it. And then I would understand them more. But I think when you ask a lot of people, you know, and this is why I would love to fucking talk to people in rural areas, you know, but, but why, right? Yes. And really, can they even tell you? Can they explain it to you? I don't know. I mean, there are sometimes I get questions like, why do you believe in certain things? I'm like, hmm. I mean, I, I feel yeah. like, you know, but sometimes I don't. Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, my wife made a great point the other day. So we, our daughter is 11 months old and, mm -hmm. and of course she's a, she's a COVID baby, right? She was born in May of last year. So all she's ever known is everybody wearing masks and not really going anywhere or seeing anybody. She's only seen her grandparents a handful of times, but previous to us being parents, my wife's brother and sister-in-law, they had a baby and my wife was at yoga with, uh, her sister-in-law was like, you know, uh, the yoga studio had like a, like a daycare deal. And she was like, Oh, look, you can, you know, take your kid to the daycare and they'll watch her yoga. And her sister-in-law's just like, fuck no, I'm not going to let somebody that I don't know watch my infant baby and there's germs and like all that stuff. Like, no, like I would rather just not be able to do yoga as often as I want than leave my kid. And my wife was like, man, that's, yeah. that's just, like a little overprotective or whatever, but then we had this kid and again, it's, uh, it's a little exaggerated because of COVID, but like the thought of sending her to some little daycare for a little bit right. you know, while we do something, it's like, that's nuts, you know? And so at the very least we could see what the sister-in-law was kind of where yeah. she was coming from. And so my wife was relaying this to me the other day. We're on the, our way to get our second COVID vaccination uh, at the time, which we're fully vaccinated now. Thank God. Okay. She goes, the reason I'm telling you this is because I was thinking about just how fucking bizarre racists are, right? And how much I disagree with them and how crazy I think that is. But like, I also, you know, now that I have a kid, like I have a little more empathy for this idea that I thought was crazy. And she's like, so obviously I'm not going to go be a racist, like in order to, to understand them more. What a career choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but like, how do, how do you talk to them? Because my wife was to have just like yelled at her sister-in-law, like, that's crazy. Like, why don't you just leave your baby? You know, that's right. not going to cause anything. Right. So just yelling at somebody, you're racist. Like, right. even if it's completely accurate, yeah. it's not going to change anything. If anything, it's going to push them further into that belief system. And so there's no answers there. Yeah. And maybe that will be uh, part two of the podcast is Elena's answers. Like you, you take all this information that you're, that you're garnering from all these different folks you talk to, and then you just put it all together and you come up with the answers and then it will change the world. And we can come back to where we marked the tape where you said you didn't think it would. And there you go. 
Well, I mean, my, my answer has been introspection is the key. That's, that's really, that's really it. If you are an introspective person, it's almost, I would say, virtually impossible to be racist, to be somebody who is completely self-centered and, and selfish. I, I don't know. I just don't think those two can go hand in hand. But, and, and again, I, I've talked about this before on the podcast. I don't think that introspection and even curiosity are things that we value in our culture. Right. They're right. just not. I mean, that can change. I don't know how much it will. I'm not exactly seeing people pushing for it. That's, I mean, I mean, COVID again, like it did, it did shift some people in that direction. Will that stick? I don't know. I mean, I feel like once you go through something like that, you don't lose it. But does that mean it will have a ripple effect? I'm not sure. But I don't know. That's been my answer for a long time. I just, with the development of smartphones and social media, I don't see it arising and, and having some sort of birth in, in our society anytime soon or become something of importance just because it's not, it's not where people's focus is. And, and because I've been this way for a long time, I'm always curious when I meet people who are introspective, like, how did you get like this? Like, I'm so curious. And a lot of times they've gone through something right? Like I had a coworker at a restaurant and like, it's weird. Like you can really, you can really see it. It's like an instant connection almost sometimes with these people where it's just like, oh yeah, they've, they've done that work. So I asked him like, so what happened to you, you know, to make you reach this place where, you know, you have so much clarity, whatever. And he's like, oh, my brother committed suicide. And that just complete, like he was a completely different person before that. And then, you know, he went through this tragedy and he came out the other side more evolved and, you know, having grown. And, you know, we talked about this in my, in the last episode about using, you know, trauma as a way to grow, but sometimes people won't have a trauma like that until they're like 50 years old, sometimes not even here. And even if they do, are they at a point where they would even want to do that work? Or is the trauma right. just going to kind of sit with them and eat them away? So I don't think that's something that, you know, I want to have to rely on. I don't want to have to rely on a pandemic to be the thing that makes people do that work. Like, I think it's just something we should value as a society. But for right now, I don't really know how you shift values unless something really impactful happens that makes people take a step back and reassess. If a global pandemic- I know, that's what I'm saying. Then it's really tough. And I mean, obviously like this is incredibly biased and a little self-serving even for me to say, but just it's books, man. It's reading. Yeah. Every time that my mind has been open, Mm -hmm. it has been with a book. Fiction, nonfiction, philosophy, poetry, the, the more I read, the more I'm open to these, these different worlds, these different lines of thought. And that's, that sounds so stupid, but like, there are people who proudly don't read. There, there are people who just, yeah. who just don't do it because it forced introspection, right? Um, yeah. In other words, as much as I enjoy, uh, you know, films and TV shows, you can experience a film and TV show just for what it is. There are a lot of people that, that do take that and you know, get introspective with it, but you don't have to, right? Like you, you see on the screen what's happening. And if you want to leave it at that, you absolutely can. But with a book, just literally reading the words, right? That's what's so powerful about language is reading the words in your head. Your mind is shaping the words and the meaning of the words. And you are fucking forced, even if it's just for a split second 
you are forced to come to terms with what that word or that sentence or that paragraph means to you because you have to in order to interpret it, right? But that is literally your brain, the way it's firing off is like, I have to decipher these words and what they mean to me in this context. And so, yeah, man, I just, if you want to promote introspection, I just think reading is one of the, the, at least the simplest ways to do it. The caveat to all this is like, dude, I have no idea who I am. I'm still working on it. I'm always working on it. I probably always will be working on it. But books are just, that's the, that's kind of the key. And I was an only child. Like we thought, I don't have some big trauma. I mean, I have little micro traumas or some, you know, shit for my therapist. Right. But as you know, I was the only child and I just read all the time. And so that's how you go from a conservative background, you know, not me personally, but just the area that I grew up in, super religious, super conservative. And it's books that kind of got me away from that mindset because a lot of people, they don't have that option, you know, and that is where a lot of empathy on my part comes in. And my, my second novel that comes out in June is called River Sing Out. And it's um, set in modern day East Texas in a very rural community where folks, they don't even have the option of introspection, right? Like I kind of put it this way. It's so scary. Yeah. It's challenging and it's frightening to find your own purpose it's much easier if it's kind of given to you, like passed down almost like an heirloom. If your parents are a certain religion, a certain political affiliation, they've worked in the same industry forever. It's almost like a birthright that you're going to do that stuff. And so, of course, you would cling to those beliefs, not only because it's all you've ever known, but also because the alternative would be coming up with your own shit. And that's terrifying. But I will say this, the pandemic for me, because it coincided with the birth of my daughter, I never thought I was going to be a dad. I'm too anxious of a person. So Are I you an anxious like, person? I'm certifiable, like on the I drugs. I never would have guessed that. <laughs> you know, I have, uh, I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed in 2008 with panic disorder. What? I Yeah, I would just have panic attacks, but like about nothing, like there was no, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, I'm nervous to speak in front of people. So I'm, so I had a panic attack. It would be like, I would just be like sitting at home, you know, watching a movie. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like I, couldn't breathe, thought I was dying. Wow. Like that. Yeah. So is that maybe that's the trauma, right? Maybe that's the trauma that has forced a lot of introspection. Certainly one of the things I thought is I would never have my mental shit together enough to raise another human. That's just too much responsibility. But fortunately, my wife has helped me along the path to, I'm not going to call it normalness, but to, to non-panicness. Yeah. She's the one that got me on airplanes, that got me to travel further than just, you know, my own little, little bubble. Well, to really challenge my anxiety, you know, and say like, almost like a behavioral therapy. She wanted a family and, you know, I love her more than anything in the world. And so I was like, well, hell yeah, let's do this. And, uh, and it's the greatest decision ever. And, and while obviously COVID was a terrible thing and continues to be, my blessing from it was that all of my book tour stuff was canceled. And so, and so I had, my, yeah, I had my daughter and I had time every day to, to, you know, watch her grow. And she's about to be a year old now. It just blows my yeah. mind watching that evolution. And so I get why people can be hopeful, why they can look at children and at younger generations and, and see that there is hope. And so that is my way of, if any, you know, for those folks that that are listening to this and going, well, goddamn guys, y'all just told us everything that's wrong. 
you know, like now, now I'm not going to sleep tonight. I will sleep soundly knowing that it, it is, you know, maybe my daughter's generation that if we can have these conversations yeah. with them as they grow up, maybe they're the ones that are going to find the answers and build off some of the examples that we're setting, even if it is just what you talked about, even if it's just being able to talk to people and, and listen to what they say, maybe we provide that first step for them, you know, to build off of. So yeah, so there's your hope. And, and on that note, I actually have to go and be a good dad. And I have to put my daughter to bed. We I, I can't sing, but I sing her lullabies. Um, maybe tonight I'll pull up a video of Aunt Elena singing a little opera. And, uh, and, we'll, <laughs> and we'll get her down that way. That way she doesn't have to hear me struggle through uh, Edelweiss from Sound of Music. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for doing this and, and for having me. I really have loved listening to your podcast. Uh, Jordan has too. we we basically talked about how cool it is that like when, when I sat down tonight, I didn't know what we talked about. I knew that you would probably start with the book, but I also knew that we would get into everything else because that's how the podcast has been. And like you have all these folks from different walks of life, yeah. you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and it's getting everybody's perspective on mm-hmm. politics, culture, like all the, it's it really is kind of an all encompassing thing. And I, I don't know, you've navigated it beautifully and just oh, kudos, man. I'm so, we're so fortunate that we met you a few years ago. And oh, uh, obviously our next trip to New York, we will let you know and, and we'll be right there at the bar. Yeah.